want to take God's word and open it to Philippians chapter 4. We want to read um, a passage of scripture that be a good reminder for us that indeed God does know our every need and it's to him that we um, we give glory and um, I think sometimes probably in, in this culture especially there may be a confusion between needs and wants and so I think this is a good reminder for us that God in, does indeed provide all we need and uh, so I'm going to ask you to stand as we read uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Excuse me, 10 through 20. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's great the way he kind of focuses right from the beginning that rejoicing, the joy is, is in him. It's, it's who we have joy in. Um, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned... But you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content. I was explaining this uh, to someone a few years ago, and um, you see how Paul writes that, I've learned to be content. It's a process in one's life, learning to be content. In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. That's quite a testimony. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. You know, um, one of the things that probably ought to cross our minds, I know the Lord reminds me about it a lot, is, you know, there's the giving that we, we do in, in terms of, you know, people think of giving, they think of coming to church and putting money in a plate. But it's a lot bigger than that. Um, it's not just giving back to God because God, He owns it all, but it's giving our lives to Him. You know, everything to him. So, he says, verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, that's quite a testimony. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we read this text, we're just reminded of your, all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. The blessing of knowing the Lord Jesus as our Savior. The blessing of being able to, to witness as we walk through life. Every day we witness your provision for us. 
it may be 50 cents that we need. It may be um, just a, an automobile or it could be anything. We just see, Lord, how, how you provide for the things in life even over and abundant of our needs, which really are clothing and food, according to your word. And um, so we just, we are so blessed. We're so rich. Rich in knowing you. And Lord, in this country, we, we are wealthy people. And Lord, we, um, we need to acknowledge that. And then, Lord, we need to, I believe, one of the things that we probably ought to do more, and um, I'm saying this first for me, is just evaluate what I've been given and be willing to give it all back to you. Whatever you show me to do. And I pray that would... That would happen more in my life, and I pray that for all of us, that, that we would consider the things that we have and the things that you've given us and, and how you want us to give to others and just share and rejoice with how you've provided and uh, how you provide for others and what a, what a joy it is to be able to, um, to give. And so we just thank you for your provision for us, for the, for the great gifts that we have and knowing you and uh, being able today, right now, uh, for these few moments, being able to um, to worship with, with one another. And Lord, I just want to pray that, that if there's anyone today that doesn't know you, that today, possibly today, Lord, could be that day of salvation. And um, there would be great rejoicing in heaven if one would come to you today. And so we just commit our time to you, and we ask that your spirit would guide us and would lead us in all these things. Uh, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship the Lord today and let's give him the glory and the honor that's due him because he is glorious and he's worthy to be praised. Let's, uh, let's sing this together.
sing the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. fails his lovely face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other seeking sand his oath is covenant his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way is all my hope and stay on Christ on Christ the
sing because the Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. His grace has reached to us and He has saved us. So we come to worship Him this morning. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls His strength will help me scale these walls I'll see the dawn of the rising sun my salvation. Who is like the Lord? of his word. When winter fades, I know spring will come. The Lord is my salvation. In times of waiting, times of Glory be to 
our salvation. He is the great and mighty God, the God of all the universe, the God who created everything. You look in the sky, and as large as that looks, he's even bigger. He's even more powerful. He's a great and he's a mighty God. And we see the crosses right there. He sent his only begotten son to come and to die for our sin, not for his, but for ours. What a wonderful, mighty God that he is. We're so thankful today because he was born. We're so thankful that he came and he was an example to us. We're so thankful that he was on the cross for us, not for himself. He didn't need it, but we did. But he went on his own accord to the cross. And then he arose from the dead. He came and he promised just like he was going to be. After three days, he came out of that grave. And he went to be with God the Father. But he did not leave us comfortless. He sent His Spirit to live within us so that we can be holy as He is holy. What a mighty, wonderful God. But even better than that, one day He's coming. <laughs> one day He's going to come in the clouds. We're going to look out there and He's going to come in the clouds. I don't know how it's going to look or how it's going to be or what, but He's going to come in those clouds and He's going to take us home. All of, you, all of you here that are believers today, you're going to be taken with him if you're still here. Uh, if you're not still here, well, then you're going to come out of the grave first. You're going to beat me. And, uh, you know, praise the Lord for that. But anyway, that's, that's what it's all about. That is the true gospel. He's coming back for us. And I just wanted you to keep, keep that in mind as we sing this uh, special song that we sing about that subject. But it is a great, great song. And the choir is going to sing the Midnight Cry.
If we believe that Christ died and rose again, then surely we believe that Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a mighty shout and with the soul-stirring cry of the archangel. His coming will be accompanied by the sound of the trumpet of God. The believers who are dead will be the first to rise and meet him. Then we, who are still living, will be swept up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall remain with him forever and ever. I see prophecies fulfilled And the signs of the times They're appearing everywhere I can almost see the Father Saying, son, go get my cheese At the midnight cry, the bride in Christ will rise. 
Let's pray together. Oh, God, our Father, what a wonderful, wonderful God you are. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that you are who you are. And, Lord, we are so small, but you are so large. But, God, you have shown your love in such a way that we can't even understand. And, God, you have done so much for us. Lord, you created this wonderful planet for us, and you put us here. But, God, we failed you. We're so sorry. But, Lord, you, you made way. You made way for us to be in your presence because we had we'd blown it, Lord. But, Father, you made a way, and you made it through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, oh, God, we're so thankful that you did because, Lord, we know that there was nothing, nothing we could do to be able to get into your presence because of our sin. But, Lord, you willingly, you willingly sent your only son, the most prized possession that you had, Lord, you, you sent him for us. And, God, we just praise you for that. And, Lord, that he went to that cross and every sin that I've committed, every sin that's in this room today and that's in this world today, Father, was on that cross with the Lord, with your Son. And, Father, it appeared that you had forsaken him because you had to turn your back on that sin. But, oh, God, but he forgave. He forgave us. And, Lord, he cleansed us with his own precious blood. And, Father... Oh, God, how can we thank you? Because, he didn't, Lord, he wasn't left right there. You didn't leave him in the grave, Father. You let him come out of that grave, and you let him to be with you and to show us that we, too, can have eternal life. And Father, as we live here, and we know now, Lord, that he didn't just leave us here just to fumble around and deal with our sin, Father. We know that one day, one day, he's going to come. He's going to come in the clouds, Father, and He's going to come and He's going to take all of us that who believe in You and who love You and, and Lord, we want to worship You. And Father, yes, we do, we do fall at times, God, but, but Lord, You're there. You rescue us and You pick us up, Lord, and You're going to lift us up into the air and we're going to meet Your Son in the air, Father, and we're, You're going to take us home. And oh God, how can we say thanks for the things that You have done for us, Lord? Things so undeserved, yet You give to prove your love for us. The voices of a million angels could not, could not express our gratitude. All that we are and all that we'll ever be, Lord, we owe it all to you. To God be the glory. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. You're who you are, Lord, and thank you that we are here with you and that we worship you. Lord, we love you today. And, Father, I just ask you that you would just be with us. And, Lord, your spirit would come down on us today, Father, and you would touch our lives. Teach us what we need to know, Father. I pray for Thad as he comes today and brings the word, Father, that what you have given him will touch in each and every one of our lives today. Thank you again for this time, and thank you for who you are. These things we pray in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, I wonder really how many in the church are looking forward to the coming of Christ. I mean, I, I guess I, I ask, I've, I've thought of that a lot because I don't know that some in the church may be too attached to the world. You ever thought about that? That could happen. Um, we use a phrase a lot that um, I wanted to kind of begin with phrase that um, you may have even used in reference speaking to your children or 
maybe uh, if you're a boss speaking to your employees. You ever heard of the phrase, that's not happening? That's not happening. You might have used it with your children, that's not happening, or with your employees, that's not happening. Well, you know, in Second Peter 3, the scoffers are using that phrase. In essence, that's not happening. They're questioning the coming of Christ, and, and um, they're doing so, and, and um, I think that's continuing today. People questioning the coming of Christ. That's not happening. Well, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe it's happening? Um, are you good with the coming of Christ? <laughs> um, I think it's something to think about. I think it's something to think about beyond just the half hour, 40 minutes that we're in this room today because I can tell you the majority of the culture is not thinking about the coming of Christ. It's not even on their radar. It's interesting to me that the scoffers, it was on their radar. And I believe it was on their radar for several reasons, but one for sure, um, they just live ungodly, according to the text, following after their own lust. And that was a continual following after passions, one right after another. And man, we live in a culture like that. Where people are following, the ungodly are following their passions one right after another, after another, after another. And in this text, we're going to see as Peter goes on in his argument, um, he's going to say, hey, look, believer, since you know these things are going to be this way, right? You know he's coming. What sort of people ought you to be? Uh, that's a pretty penetrating question. Um, we have talked about uh, this text from the perspective in chapter 3 of Peter being a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he is concerned about his sheep. He's concerned that they know the truth. And we saw, first of all, that um, he loved his sheep and that he had a desire to stir them up, to wake them up, because um, sheep can fall asleep. And I think that that applies so aptly to the church today that even some might be asleep at the wheel in the church. And then we talked about last week a little bit about the warning aspect that he warns his sheep. He loves them so much he warns them. But also we said he provides an example, which we're going to get to that today. But we kind of left right off in the middle of that warning aspect. That he's warning these believers, that, hey look, they're scoffers. And there are people out there saying, hey look, where's the promise of his coming? In other words, hey, he's not here, and he's not going to be here. And um, so we sang this morning in that last song, we believe he's coming. Right? And we believe not only in the rapture of the church, but we believe that he's coming to earth physically to rule and to reign for a thousand years. We believe that. That's what we teach. That's what really the Bible teaches. Um, I just wanted to kind of remind you this morning of this chart um, we'll probably, not probably, we will refer to it at the end as well. But I kind of want you to understand where, where we're going here, where Peter is taking these guys. Um, as you can see up there, you have the rapture of the church, and um, I've put some text there for you to consider. And um, that's the taking away of the church, right? And only the church. Um, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And that phrase, in Christ is specifically referring to the church, those who are in Christ, and then those who are alive and remain, meaning the church. So you have the coming of the Lord for the church, um, and I think there's some confusion that reigns out there. 
even in the church, between the rapture and the second coming. And we need to keep them separate because the word keeps them separate. Um, subsequent to the rapture, you have um, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord encompasses this entire time. And there's a whole lot of judgment that takes place. Here on earth, you have a period in the last three and a half years known as the wrath of the Lord. And there's a lot of, a lot of judgment that takes place during this time. And then you have the coming of the Lord to earth. Well, did you know there's judgment at that time as well? Right? When he comes, there's judgment. Uh, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19, when he comes, there's going to be a feast. And the feast is on the ungodly. Uh, he tells the birds, get ready to eat. The flesh of kings and commanders. That doesn't sound real good, does it? Right? But then you have a period of time known as the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. But at the end of that thousand year period of time is where Peter, I believe, is concentrating his attention in terms of the finality as it relates to the present heavens and earth before you have eternity. And he's also underscoring this issue of judgment for the unbeliever. I mean, if... if if you're sitting here and, and you're thinking, well, I'm going to get a pass, you're not. But guess what? No one gets a pass. No one. <laughs> the Bible says all will stand before the Lord. And John tells us in John chapter 5 that Christ is the judge. He's the one that will judge. He will judge the believer at the Bema seat. As you can see, the judgment seat of Christ there in the chart. But he's also going to judge the unbeliever. And in this passage of Scripture, Peter's getting to that. He's going to prove the argument that, hey, look, Christ is coming. And so I want to get into this uh, a little bit more this morning. We are right in the middle of a point. We said last week, if you notice verse 3, look what Peter writes. And he's talking from uh, their position. He's saying, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust." And saying, so here's the scoffing. This is where the scoffing or the ridicule comes. It comes in the form of a question. Where is the promise of his coming? We kind of looked at that a little bit uh, last week together. And then he says, for ever since, and this is their foundation of their argument, right? That, hey, Christ isn't coming. For ever since the fathers, and this refers at least to the Old Testament prophets, at least that, as you go into the text, if you look back up in verse 2, he refers to the holy prophets. So he's at least referring to the prophets, if not before. He says, for ever since the prophets fell asleep, the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so they base their argument on a technical term that's called uniformitarianism. Say that ten times fast, right? Um, and uniformitarianism is a big long word, but it means this. It says that things that continue today are the things that have always been, and therefore they will always be, right? Uh, that sounds good for the evolutionist, right? The things that have always been will always be. In other words, there is no interruption from God. There's no divine interruption. There's no evidence that there's been any divine interruption or intervention. And Peter's going to argue that there has been um, in the following verses. 
John Piper, in um, talking about this uh, position of uniformitarianism, says this. This is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting, for rejecting the supernatural coming of Jesus Christ. Uniformity sim simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun has come up and gone down. The seasons have followed each other. This is a hard phrase for me to read. The tides have risen. I got good news for you. And fallen, right? Amen. The tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years. Therefore, we must expect this constancy for the future. And any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fiery judgment by the return of Christ is unimaginable and unwarranted. And we say to that, well, it's not our word. It's God's word. It's what God has said. God certainly um, has intervened and will intervene. Um, now, if you're one of the scoffers, I mean, you're standing on this position, right? Hey, he's not coming. Um, and because he's not coming, there's going to be no judgment. I can behave like I want to behave. No fear. Um, and do you know what these scoffers do? They push out God. They push out sin. So ultimately then they push out what? Accountability. And they push out judgment. And they say, well, listen, those are some Christian wackos, right? They think that God created. And they think there was this flood. And they believe that because of those things that one day there's going to be this accountability for all people. Well, there's an article that was put on my desk a few weeks ago, and it reminded me of kind of these scoffers pushing out God, pushing out sin, pushing out accountability, pushing out judgment. I mean, right? Who likes to be judged? If you can just get rid of that, you're good, right? Well, there's a, a church known as Church of the Wild. You guys ever read that article in the Birmingham News? Nobody gets a paper anymore. The Birmingham News in August, there was a, an article about the Church of the Wild. Remember show and tell when you were a kid? Church of the Wild. I want to read to you about this church, and I want you to specifically listen to the last part because it reminded me of kind of what these scoffers do. Well, the church, which meets once a month in, the par in parks across the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, draws around 50 congregants. Services presided over by the Reverend Sarah Anders typically run an hour and a half. Worshippers drum, sing, and listen to recitations of poetry in an effort to connect with nature and fulfill the church's stated goal, which is this. And I, I still don't understand this. Honoring the mutual indwellings of the divine with the earth and all of its beings. Okay. Anders doesn't deliver a sermon. Instead, attendees wander through their surroundings in total silence for about a half an hour. We don't say the G-O-D word a lot. Well, hey, that's right. Why would you? Um, because if you say the G-O-D word a lot, there's a lot of accountability there. Uh, and he is way up here and you're way down here. Anders said, the emphasis is on God as a universal force. Our mission is to help people come more and more into their spirits and their hearts. 
If anybody can translate any of this for me afterwards, I'd really appreciate it. Anders established the church in partnership with Beth Norcross, founding director of the Center for Spirituality in Nature, and in nature, and an adjunct faculty member at Wesley Theological Seminary in the district. Church of the Wild met for the first time in April. Anders describes her congregation as a non-denominational, now listen to this, a non-denominational Christian church. But she draws on all aspects of religions. For example, services sometimes might include readings from Jewish texts. She and Norcross welcome agnostics. They say they hope the non-traditional atmosphere will allow them to better explore their faith and perhaps discover God. Anders was ordained in the United Church of Christ, a liberal mainline Protestant denomination, and preached for a period of time at Rockville United Church in Maryland. She quit that job last year. Church of the Wild doesn't pay her or anyone a salary, so she earns a living by giving guest sermons and leading religious workshops. Now here's the part I wanted you to get. Andrew said she left Rockville United because she couldn't bear tripping over typical church language one minute longer. Which, here it is, the typical church language. God as a he. People as sinners. She said, I couldn't sit and hear it anymore. Well, you don't have to sit and hear it anymore. You can leave and create your own reality and do that for 50 other people who meet with you and they continue to increase and they continue to grow. Why? Because, listen, if I can eliminate God and eliminate judgment... That sounds really good. It kind of sounds like what Peter's saying about these scoffers back up in verse uh, 3 at the end. Following after their own lust. Hey, listen, if I can live like I want to live and there's this, hey, no accountability, no fear of that, no fear of standing before God, well, that's what Peter says these guys are doing. They stand on this position known as uniformitarianism and at the end of that argument is, God's not going to intervene. Well, what does Peter do? You know what Peter does? He argues for the fact that God has already intervened. <laughs> All right, and so we're going to see that. Out on your, in your blank there, I didn't give you everything on PowerPoint today. Um, out, out to the right of the responding to the ridiculers, if you'll just put in that blank the word... That's how we respond, and that's how Peter responds to ridiculers. We respond to ridiculers by going to the Word of God. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to uh, 2 Timothy. I think Paul here sets forth a good example of how we are to respond to those who have differing views from us, right? I mean, you may be in your workplace, right, or in school, and you're going to run into people who absolutely think you're a lunatic if you stand on the gospel of Christ, right? And if you, talk, if you think or believe that Christ is coming. Well, I believe Peter sets an example for his audience. And it's interesting that Paul has that same thing in mind. In chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, if you look in verse 22, this is what Paul says. 
He says, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. That's a good thing. Faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Notice what he says, verse, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And then notice verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to do what? Teach. Patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So if I have somebody sitting across from me in opposition, let's say I have a congregant from the church of the wild, I mean, listen, I'm not going to take my Bible and beat them over the head with it. But I'm going to lovingly open up God's Word and say, this is what God says. See, I think a lot of times when we come into arguments with people, whether it's about the authority of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the gospel of Christ, I think there's this tendency to want to argue from our own vantage point, our own wisdom. Might I suggest that we just take God's Word and open it? Might I suggest that we just take people and say, this is what God says. Right? And that's exactly what Peter does in this passage in 2 Timothy. He's going to show from uh, argument and from history through Scripture, he's going to show that God has intervened. He's already intervened twice and, and more than that, but he gives uh, two examples. And we see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. First of all, he cites the example of creation. He says, verse uh, 5 of 2 Peter chapter 3. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Now, sometimes um, it's helpful if when you're studying, you compare the different uh, translations. In the New American Standard, it's not really strong enough, right? And it, it really doesn't uh, reflect what the Greek says. So really, the King James does. And that's why I gave that to you in your notes. Because this is how it reads in the original. For this they willingly are ignorant of, and then that continues. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, the spoken word of God, the heavens existed long ago. All right, heavens here referring to the expanse, to the sky that was created on the second day. You can go back to Genesis 1 and read that. All right, he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, right? And the earth was formed out of water and by water. Well, that's a kind of a weird phrase, right? But when, when Peter uses that phrase, out of water and by water, he's referring to the land that appears from the water on the third day of creation. You say, really, Thad? Yeah, go back to Genesis. I want to show you that. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Don't take my word for it. You can see it here. So what Peter does is he says, listen, they're going to say that things have always been the same and will always be the same. I'm here to tell you that God has stepped in. And he stepped in all the way back at creation. Notice chapter 1 of Genesis and then verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. By the way, that phrase, and God, let God, and God said, is used nine times here. 
Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Notice verse 9. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear and what? And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. So right from the very beginning, you have, right as we have it in God's Word, God intervening at creation. God spoke and it was. I like the way uh, Henry Morris puts it, and I have that for you in your notes. Evolutionists willingly ignore God's testimony that the heavens and earth did not evolve by continuing natural processes, but were called, look at this, were called into existence by God's omnipotent Word. He created and God said, and it was, fully complete and functioning from the beginning as we have it in the Scriptures. Yes, there's verse after verse after verse. But I want to remind you of God's creation. All right? Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. This is the psalmist. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Let all the earth, what? After he focuses on this part here, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, what does he do? He says, well then, let all the earth fear the Lord. That's the response to a creator is what? Fear. If you believe he created you, there's fear. Well, what's absent from these scoffers in 2 Peter 3? Fear. They have no fear. All right? The psalmist says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Let me ask you a question. Are all the inhabitants of this earth today standing in fear of the Lord? Not at all. You know, buddy, and there's no accident you interrupted the service. Because that's what we need to do. Stand in awe. In awe of the Lord. He spoke it and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Do you believe that? You know, because at the end of the day, guys, there has to be faith. You know, an evolutionist has faith. They do. And if you look at evolution, and you look at this big old blob or whatever, and all of this that we have now came out of that, you go, man, that takes a whole lot more faith. Well, the Bible says... I like the way it, this verse in Isaiah. I could have written verses all day long. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. And not one of them is missing. And then I really, uh-oh. I really like the, Isaiah, uh, the Nehemiah passage. You alone of the Lord. You have made the heavens the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before you. So what's going on in that Nehemiah passage? Worship. Worship. So listen, for all of us, 
in this room that know Christ, we bow before him because he is our maker. He made us. Well, these scoffers are saying, nah. Peter's like, hey, let me show you. There's been interruption since the beginning. I said a minute ago that at the end of the day, it takes faith. Let me just read this to you. You don't need to turn there. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says it. For by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the what? By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Guys, at the end of the day, I guess I, from the time I was saved when I was young, I, I never did have this, like, I wonder if God created the heavens and the earth. I just believe. I believe he did. Um, I, had, I didn't go to a hundred debates about creation and evolution. I know people who've been saved through going through that process and questioning Scripture. And at the end of the day, they get saved and they're powerful witnesses for the Lord. But Peter here refers back to a time where the Lord intervened and he talks about the creation of the Lord. But it's interesting that he not only goes to the creation, but he also goes and refers back to the flood. Now this is an interesting little section. Look at verse 6. It says through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Well, that's interesting. If you um, look at the phrase, through which, goes back to referring to water, right? Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You say, where'd the water come from? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, the Bible tells us in Genesis what there were waters above and waters where? Below. You know, I'm probably one of the ones guilty of thinking about the flood and just in terms of water above. And I haven't necessarily thought about it a whole lot until the last several years of water below. But when you read that, it's impressive. I think we think of the water above and we think it just rained for, for right all these days and... Um, and we're not thinking about the water below. But I think it's important because the Bible tells us that there were waters below. I want you to go back to Genesis. And I want to read, read something to you. Genesis chapter 7. But I want to read this quote from um, Wayne Barber on this particular text. When it says, the world at that time was destroyed. You know what? The word world refers to an orderly arrangement. All right. Um, in fact, did you know we get our English word cosmetics from that word? <laughs> yeah, I laughed too. You know, I immediately thought about was my grandma blunt. Um, because, uh, you know, cosmetics helps keep, what, one's face in order, so to speak. <laughs> it's true. And I remember when I was a little boy, I was probably seven or eight years old, my grandma Blunt had this, um, I'm not even sure what they called it, it looked like a little desk, in my mind, a vanity, thank you, this little desk with a mirror on it. And she would sit in front of that little desk, and she had all these drawers and things she was doing with her face. 
I remember walking in there one day, and, and my grandma was always accessible. But she said, Dad, I need you to go out of here. I'm like, why, Grandma? She said, I'm putting on my face. <laughs> well, to a seven- or eight-year-old little boy, that's kind of like, oh, where are you getting all that, right? Sometimes I have to tell you the story about me pulling her hair out. <laughs> I literally thought I did, but it was a wig. Um, <laughs> I guess I just told you the story. But that's the, that's the picture of this word here, this word world, okay? Uh, it is an orderly arrangement. What Wayne Barber says in commenting on this verse, he says, most conservative biblical scholars believe that the world order at that time was substantially different than the world order after the flood. So you had before the flood and after the flood. What's well, obvious that the world changed, right? Um, Extrapolating from the biblical account, the world of Noah's day seems to have possessed a unique physical environment often referred to as the canopy, representing a collection of water above the land and sheltering the earth from the sun's destructive ultraviolet rays, producing a gentle climate that was devoid of rain, storms, and winds. All right, that had to be quite an interesting time. Further, this pre-flood orderly arrangement was characterized by incredible human longevity. You go back to Genesis and you have people living 900 plus years. All right, we can't even fathom that, right? Um, and remarkable fruitfulness as the canopy acted much like a greenhouse. He goes on to write, Peter's main point is that a cataclysmic flood destroyed the cosmos. It also, he says, included the inhabitants of the world at that time, which seems to be the case. It's true. Okay, so you go to Genesis chapter 7, and the Bible tells us what took place. Look at verse 11. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. So remember, Peter's making this argument. God has intervened at creation. He's intervened here in the flood. Notice verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, now look at this, all the fountains of the what? The deep burst open. And the floodgates of the sky were open. Two different things there. All right? You have him saying the deeps opened up, and then the rains came down. As he uses here, the floodgates came down. And the Bible says the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then you skip down to verse 17. And then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it was rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water, and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Look at this. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth. And all mankind, of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, did what? Died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, to birds of the sky. 
And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now every time I read that account, and I think about the judgment of the Lord, I can't help but thinking about what Peter calls, calls Noah. He calls him a preacher of what? Righteousness. Man. Was anybody listening? And then I'm thinking, you know, and we're going to see it in a minute. There's coming a day where the present heavens and earth, according to John, flee away. Is anybody listening? Well, these scoffers are all around us. And the bad news is they're not listening. Um, so Peter gives two examples to his audience of God intervening. And he builds that argument because of what he's about to tell them. Notice verse 7. In this verse, Peter refers to finality and separation. He refers to finality and separation. Look at this. But by his word... The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. That word reserved there is a pretty interesting word in the original. It means to lay away, to store up. <laughs> uh, the present heavens and earth are on a layaway plan. And guess who's in charge of that? The Lord. He is. So Peter writes, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. All right, so immediately you're like, well, when's that going to happen? Um, I need to show you something. I might have to advance. Yeah, I'm going to have to advance the slide. So remember I said there's judgment throughout this entire period. But Peter seems to be talking about this here. This period here at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. And he talks about the destruction of the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting, I was asking someone this, this past week, it's interesting to me that Peter mentions it, but as you get to Revelation, there's no mention of fire. It's just kind of interesting to me in that particular context, but if you come up with something, let me know. Um, I want to show you this. There's three times in 2 Peter where he talks about this fire. Notice uh, verse 7, I just read that to you. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord, which includes all of this period here, okay, will come like a thief. Now, then he fast-forward, seems to, the pages. He says, in which the heavens will pass away. They're going to be gone. With a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Notice this. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Then you go to verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which the day of God is different from day of the Lord. The day of God refers to the eternal state. All right? The day of the Lord is this period of judgment that takes place um, that begins after the rapture of the church subsequent to that. He says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which is the eternal state, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So three times in this passage, Peter's like, hey, there's fire coming down. And in verse 7 it says, 
the present heavens and earth are being reserved for that judgment in which John says they're going to flee away. I need you to take your Bibles and go to Revelation because John, although he doesn't mention the fire, he does mention it, the present heavens and earth fleeing away. So you have the, as we read Scripture, you have the pre-flood world, all right? You have the post-flood world, and then there's coming another world, as we're going to see uh, next time together. There's another time where there's going to be new heavens and a new earth that he mentions. But in Revelation chapter 20, just to, to kind of give you some proof text here, at the, end of the at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a rebellion. All right, so I, I, that's right here. There's going to be a rebellion on earth against the Lord and against the saints. And the Bible says in verse 9 of Revelation 20, and, they, and remember this is at the end of the millennial kingdom, it says, And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Who's them? All these people who are against the Lord and his saints. All right? And verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of, of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And look at this, And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So there's not annihilation, there's torment. Verse 11, and Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, Now look at this next phrase, From whose presence earth and heaven did what? Fled away, gone, right? And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, and they were judged according to the things that were written in it. Now, if you go down to, and we're going to get back to that in a minute, but if you go down to uh, chapter 21, he uses the same phrase. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which he's going to talk about in 2 Peter 3, for the first heaven and the first earth, what? Passed away. Gone. So when we sing that song, right, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth, that's what we're looking for. Um, and Peter is telling these believers, hey, listen, there is a judgment day coming for the current heavens and earth, just as there was in the day of Noah. You know, if you compare, you're like, whoa. How was man before the flood, according to Genesis 6? Evil. How often was man evil? Oh my goodness, I've heard that before. Continually. What did Paul say, I mean, Peter say here in, uh, about these scoffers, that they're following after their own lust, what? Continually. And just as there was judgment there at the flood in Noah's day, guys, listen to me, there's judgment coming that's eternal. It's eternal. Because, listen, after the heavens and the earth are burned up, what do you have? You have eternity. And at that time, you have these unbelievers who are judged. Can I show you something? Um, I think it's a, an interesting point. I have a couple things to say. I'll be done. I'm sorry it's so long today. Um, 
Number one, God built into his creation destruction. Do you know that? Because you have the flood and the record of the flood and the waters below and the waters above. He built into his creation destruction. And do you know he built into his creation the future destruction as well? Think about it. I like the quote here by John MacArthur. Um, the core of the earth is filled with flaming, boiling, liquid lake of fire. The temperature, which is some 12,000 degrees. There's a debate between 10 and 12, but <laughs> it's hot, okay? I mean, I'm going, well, what's the debate? I mean, that's hot. The temperature was just some 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, um, any of you have been to Hawaii and, and seen the lava flow? Any of you guys seen that? I mean, like, it's very impressive. Uh, on the big island... I wasn't planning on telling you guys this, but I'm telling you. On the big island, uh, we were there years ago, and um, there's this lava rock everywhere. How many of you knew lava was hot? Hot? Yeah, good. Well, MacArthur says that the temperature is some 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then he says the human race is separated from the fiery core of the earth only by a 10-mile crust. That sounds like a long way. But it's not. When you're thinking about 12,000 degrees. And then he writes, the earth waits for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. You know, guys, the earth will be destroyed. And that's sad in one sense because with that comes the destruction of the unbeliever. But... Um, this destruction here that he defines for us, look at the last part of verse 7. He says, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. That word destruction is not annihilation. The ungodly are not annihilated. They're forever going to be tormented. You know, I was thinking about that this week, and, and um, man, that was, that's hard to think through. Because I'm thinking, Lord, I've, I've had people die that were family and friends. I didn't know the Lord. And they're going to be forever away from the Lord. The word destruction refers to the ungodly who are ruined. Who are ruined and separated literally from the face of the Lord. Um. You say, where do you get that? Well, I want you to go back with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Well, I have it here for you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Um, I mean, hell already sounds bad enough. But as I was studying this, I was like, the word, it means to be ruined. It means to be separated from. Well, we know, and we sang this morning, you know, when the Lord comes for his church, the Bible tells us in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, that we will always be with the Lord. Always. Now, you, you can't get, that's a good deal. Always with the Lord. I mean, that makes heaven, heaven. I mean, for me, I, as I look at that, I'm like, yeah, heaven's beautiful. We have description, but, but heaven's about the Lord. Well, the unbeliever doesn't get that. Now, this is in a different context in, in, 2 Timothy, but, in 2 Thessalonians, but I want to show you this, all right? Let me uh, go back 
to when he's talking. He's talking about this time here. Okay? So he's talking about when Christ comes to the earth. In verse 7, I'm sorry. Oh, come on. It's not time for children's church. Oh, my goodness. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. You know what that word presence there literally means in the Greek? Face. Face. It means away from the face of the Lord. The blessing of heaven is to be in the presence of the Lord. Moses wanted to see who? He wanted to see the face of the Lord. One day we are going to be face to face with our Lord. But the Bible says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that these guys will forever be away from the presence or the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And I understand omniscience. All right? And I understand omnipresence. I understand, which means, you know, God is everywhere, right? But I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, the emphasis here is that these guys are away from the presence, from the face of the Lord when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And so as I read that, I was, I was just moved. Like, man, Lord, people who do not know you will forever be away from your face. But people that do know you will be face to face with you in all your glory. And I want to end with an encouragement and a challenge. So I want you to go with me to 1 John. Let me show you this. 1 John chapter 3. And this is for all of you who know the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 John. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will see him just as he is. Are you a scoffer? You say, come on, Thad, you know everybody in here. No, I don't. Not like, I, don't, I know a lot of people in here. I don't know your heart. I got no idea what's going on in there. Are you a scoffer? Are you one of those that say, ah, I don't believe this whole Jesus thing and he's not coming? Do you know... Peter uses two examples. He uses the example of the flood. And he uses the example of creation to establish the fact that indeed the Lord is going to intervene again. But you know, there's more than just those examples. Do you know the Lord intervened at the cross? We were hopeless and helpless. He intervened on the cross. Do you know that God, and we, we sang about it today, and I think somebody mentioned that God intervened at the resurrection of Son. The Bible says God raised His Son from the dead. 
Gazi's going to intervene again at the rapture. The church is going up forever to be with the Lord. And for those that are left, for those that are left, all right, I'm trying to learn how to work this thing. For those that are left, now if you want to read about that, time of judgment, go to Revelation. It's not a pretty sight. And then the Bible says he's coming to the earth to rule and to reign. And at the end of that thousand years, there's going to be rebellion. The Bible says it's the sands of the seashore. They'll come against the Lord. You know what's so wonderful about the battle of Armageddon and the battle at the end of the millennial reign of Christ? He doesn't need our help. He's got it covered. That's the kind of God we serve. From my perspective, it ought to create some fear in us. I think that's exactly what Peter's trying to strive for. And you're going to see it as he goes on and he writes. He's like, man, what kind of people ought we to be? So as, you, as a believer, as you think about your life and I think about my life, what kind of people are we? As believers, think about the opportunities that we have to witness. Because there are a lot of people out there that are lost. I want to uh, close with a story. So last week, I gave the challenge at the end about, you know, the Lord giving us opportunities to witness. I couldn't decide what I wanted to eat. Teresa and I were going to go home. We weren't going to go out. I like Chinese food. I mean, I just like Chinese food. I was made to eat Chinese. I love Chinese food. So I was like, well, I'm going to go get, she said, well, you're going to go Chinese, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, probably. So I'm on my way home, and I'm like, ooh, there's Milo's. I haven't had a Milo burger in a long time. And everybody goes to Milo's. And so I went through Milo's, and I minded my own business, but I have my window rolled down, and there's this lady that's leaning across the rail, and she has a Coke, and she's drinking the Coke. But I notice it's not a Milo's cup. And she said, and I, I've got my order, and my mind is on eating my fries. I love the little fry salt. I'm ready to go, right? And she said, hey, sir, can you take me to the dollar store? I'm like, man, I just told these people at church, look for every opportunity. Here I am, man, Lord, you are already testing that. And I said, yes, I can. So she gets in the truck, and we're driving down to the dollar store there by the bank down there on Chalkwell Mountain Road. And, and she's telling me her story of her life. She starts telling me the story of her life and her children. And, and uh, she said, I believe my, my son was saved. He died a few years ago. She said, he went to church. So I think he's with God. I said, so, going to church means that you get to be with the Lord? She said, yeah, I don't know. She said, well, you know, he was born again. And so, through that conversation, the more confusing it got, I was like, you know, Lord, I can clear this up for her. And it's not my wisdom, it's yours. Going to church doesn't save anybody. Not a soul. 
You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Period. Guys, we don't know, right? We have no idea when he's coming. But he's coming for his church. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I just can't imagine what it must have been like for Peter who was on the precipice of death to write this. Um, he knew his hope was in you and, and he was strong in that and stood on that. And, but he was tending sheep, so he was concerned about them. And that's what shepherds should be. And... Um, he was concerned that they stay the course. Lord, we have an enemy, as you know, who loves to get the believer off course. I pray we'd stay on the course, that we'd stick to your word, that we wouldn't try to answer things in our own wisdom or own understanding. Lord, that we would every day remind, be reminded by your Spirit that we belong to you if we're in Christ every day. And what a privilege that is to, to, to be a believer, to be born again. It's a privilege. And Lord, as we come in contact with people, that we would be um, relying on your spirit as we have opportunities to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of salvation. Lord, I, um, I know in studying this, what this has done for me is um, really made me think more about the people that are here. And um, there are so many people that are just lost and, and don't have a clue. Um, and there's some like the scoffers who know a little and um, who are saying, hey, he's not coming. And um, I pray that we would stand on your word and that we would defend your truth and be aware of the enemy. And God, I thank you that we don't have to walk this life alone, that you've given us your spirit that resides in us, that leads us into all truth. And so I just pray that you would help us, help us to be dependent, Help us to be um, proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until you come, Lord, for your church, I pray that we would walk worthy of the call. And um, all these things I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I had mentioned that presence of being the presence of God, that's what heaven's all about. So let's sing about that as we close today. In the presence of a holy God There's new meaning now to grace You took all my sin upon yourself I can only stand amazed In the presence of your infinite might 
I'm so small and frail and weak When I see your power and wisdom, Lord I have no words left to speak And I cry, holy, holy, holy God How awesome is your name Holy, holy, holy God How majestic is your reign And I am changed In the presence of a holy presence of your glory all my crowns lie in the dust you are righteous in your judgments Lord you are faithful true and just and I cry holy 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 God how awesome is your Holy, holy, holy God, how majestic is your reign. And I am changed in the presence of a holy God. And I cry, holy, holy, holy God, how awesome is your name. Holy, Holy, holy God, how majestic is your reign. And I am changed in the presence of a holy God. And I am changed in the presence of a holy God. And I am changed in the presence of a holy God. All right, stand up. Must be dismissed in prayer again. Lord, thank you for um, the time you've given us today to, to worship together. And I pray that we would take your word and uh, hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.